On this episode of Resi Week, we talk chat GTP, accountability, and designing outdoor systems. All this and more on this episode of Resi Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is Resi Week, episode 370. I'm an alarmist? Welcome to this episode of Resi Week. This is your weekly roundup of all the latest news and stories for the residential AV industry. I'm your host, Matt D. Scott for avnation.tv. And this week, I am pleased to be joined by two of my good friends. First, we have Catherine Wheeler. She's an industry vet and a writer. How you doing, Kat? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And then, of course, we have Mr. Jason Knott. He's the chief content officer at CE Pro. How you doing, Jason? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to make Mitchell a very happy man today. And I am going to talk about a article on CE Pro all about chat GTP and what it means for the CI channel. This is written by a good friend of the show, Mr. Alex Capisolantro, uh, out of Josh AI. He covers um, a, a really good quick overview of what chat GTP is, as well as some of the things that they're working with it uh, within for Josh AI uh, to do some some cool things there, as well as kind of have a, a larger conversation about what it means for the channel, which is what I want to do. So Kat, let me start with you on this one. I am, I'm on the fence is the easiest way for me to say that with chat GTP. Uh, or Bing chat, whatever the Microsoft one that uh, just got announced or, or just went live last week because um, Microsoft has to play in all these games too. I'm on the fence with this. I think it is a really potentially great tool. I also see a lot of pitfalls for it, um, which is kind of normal of any new, you know, growing tech. Uh, what is your... What is your opinion on this? How does this fit? How is this something that can be utilized effectively uh, in, in our channel right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a tool. Um, I'm a fan. I, I think anybody that's going to be an alarmist about it needs to kind of have some hands-on experience because I think it's very useful for a lot of different things. Um, the way that I've used it is in content creation and brainstorming. So if I need ideas or I have an idea that's maybe like halfway there, you can ask it a question and it will help you and give you, you know, a ton of suggestions. You can ask them to rethink it. It redoes it. Um, and anything that you put in the chat, it will reference back to. So if you're writing something and you keep referring, it'll refer back to your previous queries to add that into it. So from a brainstorming and content creation perspective, I think it's a really useful tool. For the CI channel, the things that it's doing with programming and things like that, I think are really interesting. They're probably not as good as they will get, but it's not going to take anyone's job today. Um, in the future, will it be a helpful tool for people to use? 100%. And we should all take advantage of what's available for us to use. If it can make, if it can help us do our jobs quickly and better, then why wouldn't we use it? If you listen back, she essentially called me an alarmist. Just, just to be clear, <laughs> Jason. <sighs> I, I'm with Cat in the sense that it's a tool. There's a lot of effective uses for it. Um, I've been I've been following it fairly closely. Um, I saw uh, some some 
really, really cool HTML5 web development things that were done in like 30 seconds. Uh, things that would take, you know, your, your average programmer, maybe 30 minutes or an hour uh, to, to, and a bunch of plugins to make that happen. And ChatGDP is doing it really, really quickly. I've seen a bunch of copy that it's written that is honestly publishable. Um, especially considering what passes for some publications these days. Um, not yours, of course, never, uh, but some other ones. <laughs> Jason, the one thing that I'm, I'm curious with is how long it will be before this is maybe not taking someone's job, but taking some large elements of somebody's position. Uh, a, a friend of mine has been using it for system design. And they're plugging in and getting workable system designs in two minutes, which is unfathomable for, for most, you know, situations that we come across. What is that aspect going to be for our channel? Well, not to say that I'm worried about it taking my job, but I did get a note the other day that they're replacing me with some guy named Chet G. Peters. So... I'm not sure if there's an indication there. Don't worry about him. It's not a big deal, I'm sure. Yeah. The interesting thing to me about this is is an evolution, you know, and if this had come out, I think, um, 10 years ago, we would have been all alarmists. But now think about the way we are now in terms of how we interact with the voice recognition systems in our homes already. <clears throat> you know, 10 years ago, you never would have seen... Um, IP video cameras in a home, people never would have done that. Now people are not really um, as concerned about having that privacy element um, uh, kind of broken down. <clears throat> um, the interesting thing about the article is that this thing really blew up on the internet. If you saw, there was all sorts of um, consumer tech media that were talking about chat GPT for controlling the smart home. And in fact, the Verge had their their headline, which was kind of that alarmist type headline of, "Would you let uh, Chat GPT control your your home?" And of course, they have all these movies out where the home becomes evil and you know mm -hmm. destroys people. And then we've been reading about all these things where you ask that a question and it says, "Yes, I'm going to create a virus that will kill human beings," and you know it's it's giving these sort of re sentient responses. That's where a lot of the fear comes in. But then if you read the article that, that Alex wrote for us, um, he really specifically lays out exactly how it will be used in the smart home in terms of being able to respond, not specifically to a specific command, but to some sort of a statement like the kids are coming home soon. I think that was one of the examples he had. The kids are going to be coming home soon. Can you help me out with that? And then having the, the, the intelligence of the system to be able to know, oh, we're going to dim the lights, we're going to turn on the music, we're going to unlock the doors. It's going to do all these smart home functions based upon a simple command like that that's more, um, I don't say parenthetical, but kind of um, open-ended command versus, hey, please open the blinds, turn, dim the lights, turn on the music and unlock the door which is what you kind of have to say now to some of the other voice command systems. Yeah. So um, I think the big question is from an ultimate standpoint, do, do we think people are going to not um, adopt smart home technology because of this? I think the answer is no. 
I think I would be very doubtful that people who are going to have smart homes are going to be so afraid of this. Um, to answer your specific question, roundabout way, will it take jobs? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think that there, there probably will be a function to it. You know, it's, it's, um, I can't remember the old proverb with the guy who was the, the rail spike and he goes against the machine. You know, what was that? John Henry? John Henry, you know, nice. old John Henry it goes against the machine, you know, um, the song, um, the old folk song. So, um, you know, it, to a certain extent, I think it will take some jobs, but I think we will adapt. So, so Kat, let me just, just before we move on, let me, let me throw this at you. We've had a massive issue in our, in our channel and in most trade channels, to be honest, where labor is at a incredible shortfall. Should integrators be leveraging things like ChatGTP as a tool to deal with that? Obviously, it can't go hang a TV for you. But as I mentioned earlier, it's doing some system design. It can write copy. It can do some stuff to get you further down the line and maybe take some of that workload off some of your office staff. Is, is this one of those... I don't, I don't want to say holy grail tools, but this is kind of a, you know, Swiss army knife of tools that I don't think we're utilizing well enough from the business side. A hundred percent. I think you nailed it because I think if you're a small business, you have an, you know, a finite amount of resources and that's labor. One of the most cost intensive things you can do is hire new people. So if you have, let's say 10 people and you can do 10 jobs a year, you're limited to that, right? That's all you can do. But if you can leverage this tool to take some of that workload and make it quicker and easier and you know do more jobs with the resources that you have without that added investment that people may not be able to, to have at that point, then you can grow a business quicker and then get to the place where you can hire more people, invest in more vans and et cetera. So I think it's an amazing tool for people who are trying to grow their business to use so they can be more profitable, do more jobs, get more business. I love it. All right, let's change topics for a second. This comes to us from Residential Systems. The importance of accountability by Matt Bernarth. Uh, this is part of their vital uh, business mastery classes. He goes through um, accountability and what's involved in accepting responsibility and actions for one's job within a company. Um, I love this topic. Uh, I, I've got another podcast thing I do with my wife and our most recent episode was actually about this. It, it was about taking ownership, uh, which is just another fancy term for taking accountability. Jason, I, I want to start with you on this one. How do you go about being a leader and being accountable? Because we always hear the, the adage that I, it's come out of, or I've heard it a lot out of some military channels of, you know, the when, when, when something goes well, it, it's always going up. It was the guy above that, you know, they, they're always the commander who made it work. And when something went wrong, it was always the private that stinking screwed it up. Um, this is a different animal. This is talking about taking, you know, accountability for things. How do you lead with accountability? Yeah. I love this article because he points out that you can't expect accountability from your staff unless you as the leader of your company also hold yourself accountable. And it really does start <clears throat> there. And 
I also liked how he said that you shouldn't shy away from accountability. That's not like you're going to be, you know, taking a whip to somebody's back because you say, I want to hold my staff accountable. Mm -hmm. But I liked um, the point that he made um, uh, two specific things that specific things that I liked in there. One was where he mentioned that one way to show your leadership and accountability is you have to treat everybody fairly. And if you treat people differently within your staff, then that um, reflects poorly on your own accountability. Um, And then um, also, I think the other part was trust, that you have to have trust in your people in order for um, them to trust you. And if it's a it's a two way street and that both of those things, both of those concepts um, really, I think, bleed accountability and blend uh, great leaders. And the one thing I'll say about this, uh, Matt's um, a great guy at Vital, Matt Bernath, and he's been writing some great stuff um, and doing some 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 great presentations, some great consulting. And I think that this industry has matured so greatly from where it was, you know, a decade ago or two mm-hmm. decades ago, I'm showing my age, um, that these sorts of things that people would not have even read or wouldn't even have thought of reading now are important for them to read. Yeah, that's a really good point. Kat, let, let me come over to you on this. How do you build this in your team? Because to, to Jason's point, if you're a leader and you have accountability and um, you know, you're holding yourself accountable and you're trying to hold your staff accountable, you're trying to leverage trust, all, all of those things are great. But if you have somebody that's on the team who has never experienced this before, how do you, uh, as simple as, how do you teach them what it is? Um, I think Jason made a good point. And that's that's leading from the top down. Like I always tell people, like, I would never ask anyone to do anything I wouldn't do myself. Um, and, you know, kind of demonstrating that kind of self-accountability is important. I think, I think where this kind of goes off the rails for me is when we talk about accountability and leadership and, you know, people trying to get metrics from it and KPIs and all those kinds of things, that's where it gets really weird really quickly because building accountability and building trust are vitally important, but sometimes people take it too far. For example, if you have a programmer in your company and you're like, okay, we're going to hold you accountable for every day, everything that you contribute, all that you bring to the table. And we're going to do that by saying you have to write X amount of codes, X amount of lines of code every day. What are you going to get? You know, you're going to get somebody who's going to write as many lines of code as you want them to. But is all of it going to be useful? Is some of it going to be junk? That's not building trust. So building realistic performance indicators and having realistic measures of accountability is the important part, because that's what's going to build trust and build a good team. How much of it comes down to understanding that accountability is different and separate from job performance? Because I've always viewed it from from the ownership standpoint. I've always viewed and not not like I own the company ownership, but from like taking ownership standpoint. I've always viewed it as an overarching thing, not a singular like, you know, we need you to go and install five speakers today. That is your job. Install five speakers. If you did four, then you're not. I, I can't hold. You know, I got to hold you accountable for that. To me, it's it's never been that. Um, direct or or quantifiable. It's always been a, hey, did you do what we asked you to do today? Whatever that is. And did you do that properly? Did you screw it up? That, to me, that's where accountability typically plays. 
Am I wrong on that? I mean, I think ideally that's the right way, but I think people try to make those qualitative things quantitative and measure them. But I think um, one of the best ways to do that in a group setting is to make it a safe space for people to say, I failed or things didn't go wrong. So people are equally as willing to say, this went great. This job went awesome. This didn't go well. We need to, you know, revise how we look or how we do this and, and make it a, a community, a team that's built on trusting each other and building accountability that way. I like it. All right. Let's change topics yet again. This comes to us from CE Pro and Ken Hench. Did I say that right, Jason? Uh, Ken Hecht. Not even close. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed to ask those ahead of time, but it's more fun for you guys when I don't. All right. Uh, designing a great sound system for the great outdoors. Ken goes through uh, a, a bunch of really, you know, foundational things as far as understanding how to design a, a quality outdoor system. So read through that. Uh, again, he covers pretty much everything you'd want to get from the ground up if you have not done outdoor. Kat, let me start with you on this. Obviously, there's a lot of differences and we can get into all the, the sciences and design choices of building a system for outdoors. Um, but Ken did a good job of that. What I want to ask you about is at what point do you leverage your manufacturer partners? Everybody touts that they have system design, right? So if you're coming in and you're not well-versed in outdoor or you have an outdoor project that is a little bit bigger than maybe the typical system that you would do. How do you go about leveraging your manufacturers to assist you with that and determining if, or, or which manufacturers are, are good at that? Um, I would ask all of them. <laughs> Take it back. I mean, if you have, if you are a partner with a speaker manufacturer and you're looking to put audio outdoors and you don't, you don't know know how to do it, you know, ask the expert, ask anyone you can ask for help. And a lot of them will do system design, you know, free of charge for you. Why wouldn't you ask somebody to help you do it? I think, I mean, I love that article. I thought it was great. He brought up one thing that I never thought of, which was using, you know, in ceiling speakers in outdoor environments. I just never even think of that because I don't think of, you know, having outdoor spaces like that. So, you know, when you talk about using your manufacturers, these guys see it all. So they know more than anyone's going to know. So why wouldn't you use their expertise? I mean, that's a no brainer. The, you know, the outdoor market boomed when the pandemic hit. There yeah. was, you know, so many people who wanted to, you know, didn't want people inside their homes, but they still wanted to get entertainment. They, so they um, not only added entertainment, but networking, all sorts of different devices. Um, we just completed our outdoor uh deep dive that's in the um, uh, March issue of CE Pro. Um, and it's also up on the website right now um, as a download. But we asked what was the biggest issue related to outdoor um, um, work. And um, by far, the response was that integrators still have difficulty explaining the price difference from an outdoor piece of equipment and why it costs so much more than an indoor piece of equipment, whether it's a TV whether it's a speaker or whatever it may be, because they are totally different price points. Yeah. So um, if I were to work with, you know, to your question, a cat, if I was an integrator and I was really wanting to succeed in this outdoor space, that would be something I would go back to the manufacturer and say, please give me the specific talking points that I need to use with my customer base to explain why this product does cost so much more and why it 
an outdoor piece of equipment is totally different than an indoor piece. Yeah, or or explain it to them when it's minus 20 Fahrenheit or Celsius. It really doesn't matter. Um, and say, yeah, it still plays because, you know, that's why it costs more because it's freaking outside in the snow. Because um, maybe exactly. I had playing through an ice sheet last week. One other thing I thought was interesting in his article, he talked about um, theft. And it's something you mm-hmm. don't think about, you know, we're on these outdoor projects, especially new construction environments. There's a ton of contractors you're doing outdoor. Um, it's hard to secure that equipment when you're midstream in the installation. And a lot of it gets legs a little more consistently than indoor pieces of equipment do. So it's something to um, obviously think about um, yeah. in terms of how you're going to maybe get the crew in there on, on, um, you know, a big enough crew in there so that you can get far enough into the job. So it's not going to be easy that you're just going to be stacking boxes in the garage for tomorrow's install and then have them, you know, disappear when you show up the next day. Yeah, that's a good point. Jason, one of the things that I always find interesting about some of these peripheral spaces is uh, I have this feeling that we don't ask enough questions of the clients, of the end users. We typically do a decent job when it's, you know, an inside theater or media room or family room or something like that, because most of those solutions kind of follow the same system design, the same price points, right? Outdoor can be astronomically different. And we had a project uh, probably two years ago where I thought we had asked all the right questions and we put the system in and they loved it. And the response I kept getting back was, well, make it louder. I'm like, well, it's pretty loud. I'm like, no, make it louder. I'm like, it's really stinking loud. I'm like, no, 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 I need it louder to the point of, had I realized how loud they stinking wanted that system to go, we would have spec completely different products. Even though I thought I had a really good handle on what clients want. Is that a situation where you need to ask, you know, again, your, your typical questions and then almost do a demo and, and verify what, in this example, loud actually means to them when they're outside? Well, I think if you ask those questions, going back to the article, you know, Ken explains the difference between omnidirectional speakers, direct speakers and line array speakers and what those uses are, you know, for a long throw versus uh, more concise, uh, confined or narrow listening areas versus filling the whole backyard. I know I, I visited a home last year out here in Cape Cod that was you know right on the water, gorgeous mansion that had, you know, a huge number of speakers outside. We were touring the outside project and the integrator told me how, and I thought this was brilliant. Mm-hmm. That when he was doing the demo, he made sure that he told all the neighbors about the neighbor. And then guess who ended up buying systems? Because he put in this, you know, awesome kick-ass system. But then he made sure the neighbors knew, hey, I'm going to be putting in this system. Do you want to hear the demo? Do you want to hear it? It's going to be loud. You might be able to hear it from your house. So it opens up a whole new market opportunity. That is one of the things they need to be concerned about is... I have talked to integrators who've done systems on the audio side, and you do need to be cognizant of that loudness with your client of what the neighbors are going to think. Yeah, they didn't care at all. (laughs) 
and 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 we have the well, they're Canadians. Actually, no, 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 no. The the client didn't care. Uh, the neighbors a hundred percent did, and I think somewhere I still have copies of the police report. Uh, the police reports uh, about how loud that system ended up being. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's leave it there. Thank you both so much for joining us. Jason, if people want to connect with you, learn more about CE Pro, where can they do that? They can uh, follow me on Twitter at Jason W. Not. They can follow uh, Chet G. Peters, who's going to be coming in as the, the new editor of CE Pro, or you can go to CEPro.com. I love it. Kat, if people want to connect with you, learn more about uh, your writing and all the other things you're doing, where can they do that? Um, they can go to my website, which is catwheeler.com or go buy my books on Amazon. Excellent. Yeah. Just search for them. They're pretty easy to find. All right. Thank you again for joining us. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter at Matt D. Scott and most other social platforms, but more importantly, please visit aviation.tv where you'll find this show as well as a wide variety of other shows with all the verticals that we cover. When you visit the website, please take a moment to check out our supporters. We are extremely thankful for their support and ask that you check them out as well. Thanks again for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of Resi Week.